All right. I am now joined by uh, Emerson Green, who is a first-time guest uh, on the YouTube channel, though he has been on The Colin Show. How are you doing, Emerson? Good. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I thought you might be an interesting person to do this with. We haven't done a Hitchens debate here in a little while. Um, and it is one of the wells we like to go back to. Um, and, you know, since you're somebody who I know is interested in, you know, atheism and philosophy of religion and all of that, thought it might be a good one for you. So I should say, um, you know, like I watched a bunch of these. I wrote a book about Hitchens, uh, order link in the, uh, <laughs> in the description. Um, but, uh, but I wrote about a bunch of these in the book. Uh, this isn't one of the ones that I included, but I, I definitely did watch it. I think when I was, um, when I was researching it, uh, and you know, it's, it's just, um, a little bit of a fun reversal, uh, cause, the because uh, the debate question is you know Hitchens's book is uh, you know God is not great uh, how religion poisons everything and the debate question is does atheism poison everything uh, so uh, any uh, any kind of opening thoughts about any of this the debate itself the um, you know Hitchens Berlinski any of that stuff before we get started. Yeah, I mean, this is not typically the kind of thing that I engage with. I'm, I'm sort of more mm -hmm. interested in, you know, philosophy of religion, um, mm -hmm. as you know, and, you know, new atheism is, uh, you know, more concerned with like the socio-political, cultural effects mm -hmm. of fundamentalism in particular. So, I, you know, I, I'm not against, you know, the activist side of things, but I just happen to be more interested in mm -hmm. the philosophy of religion. And, you know, it came up a little bit in this debate. I kind of skipped around um, in preparation. and I looked into this Berlinski guy who apparently is a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute. And I do love talking about intelligent design. Um, sadly, it doesn't come up that much in this debate, it doesn't seem. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting that he wants to defend this proposition because, or this motion, because from what I can tell, he's not personally religious. He doesn't like mm -hmm. engage in any religious practice or, or have religious experiences, but um, he's still a defender of religion. But yeah, it's well, it's that, a it's a fun debate, I think, overall. And we do have the Chrome Dome Hitchens in this one. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, it's kind of funny actually, because to connect two parts of what you just said, it's certainly, um, like. The fact that Berlinski is not personally religious in a weird way makes this more interesting to me because he's making the kind of argument that I feel like a lot of conservative intellectuals make with sort of different degrees of obviousness or self-awareness maybe, right? Which is um, that like this would be a little bit of a caricature, but I think only a little bit. Right? It's like, well... Who knows if this is right, but you should totally believe it because, you know, that's going to be better for social order. Yeah, kind of the Jordan Peterson thing. He kind of perfected the obscurantism there. But as far as I can tell, he is some kind of atheist, you know, who just thinks mm -hmm. that religion is necessary. Yeah, or at the very least, he's not. Uh, yeah, it doesn't come from a deep well of, of religious feeling on his part. Um, and yeah, so it's this is... Um, you know, whether or not he's an atheist exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, as you say, this is definitely the, um, this is definitely the Jordan Peterson thing. In fact, this is 
uh, credit where credit's due. I think it was uh, Stefan Bertrand Lee, who I was, I was talking to on this Sublation uh, YouTube channel, I don't, I don't remember exactly, a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about Jordan Peterson and you know, particularly the way Jordan Peterson makes use of and talks about Nietzsche, which I expressed not for the first time some confusion about, right? You know, because it's like, well, he seems to be super duper into Nietzsche, but like, you know, Peterson seems to think Christianity is a good thing, right? So, so what's what's going on there? Uh, and uh, <laughs> and uh, and and what they said, you know, what what uh, what Stefan uh, said is well, the key is that you know, it's like Peterson almost treats it as if Nietzsche is like saying like, oh, the death of God, whatever, like is like a thing that's going to happen you know, culturally, sociologically, but that's bad, right? You know, that yeah. like, it's, it's like a, a warning instead of a celebration. And I've got to say, right, since, 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 uh, since they said that, I've been thinking, it's like, oh, all right, now I get it, right? You know, like now, now I get what he's saying, you know, when he constantly, uh, when he constantly brings up Nietzsche. And, you know, and again, I think this is not an uncommon uh, move for a certain kind of conservative intellectual to, uh, to make, right? I mean, like I remember even like reading, Many many years ago, uh, Leon Trotsky's uh, like autobiography. I think it's called My Life. I, I might be wrong about that, but anyway, he where he just has this pa- in passage story here about like being a kid. It's like some, or I don't know, maybe he was like eighteen or something. But like some czarist, uh, like minor state official, sort of casually admitted to him. It's like, look, I've read Darwin. I know, I know this is all bullshit, but like, you know, it's good for the people you know, to have a religion, and, you know, this mm-hmm. is, and this is something that like, I, I think there are slightly different ways you could make the move, you know, like, I think like, um, well, Christopher Hitchens brother, who's still alive, Peter Hitchens sort of does a version of this in his, his book, the rage against God, but it's sort of in that sense, it's like, well, it's good to believe this for that reason. Therefore I'm going to like, you know, take a leap of faith and make myself believe it. Right. You know, that's like one version of it, you know, but and then maybe it like sort of shades into more cynical versions. Yeah, I I forgot about that whole sort of elitism of like, well, you know, the common people need it. You know, we don't need it because we're enlightened and intelligent. But um, yeah, I've I've just never really um, shared that intuition, I guess. I I think people can handle it. you know, if it's if atheism isn't true, then you know, sure. obviously it it might. But yeah, I just I, I don't have that sort of anti-egalitarian sentiment. I guess that like uh, we need to you know we need to give uh, you know noble lies. You know, yeah, <laughs> we need yeah. to spread those for like the commoners, and then uh, you know because I, I feel like Berlinski might be sort of one of those people because he doesn't seem to personally believe it, but he still thinks atheism poisons everything. Yeah, I'm not totally clear. Now, you might have watched this more recently than I have, right? So you might have a better idea, right? I'm not totally clear whether he's like, you know, not religious, but is like sort of vaguely a theist, uh, or he's and like yay religion, or like whether, um, you know, or whether like he he has like a more openly cynical position than that. Uh, maybe it'll, it'll get clearer in the debate as we watch. I actually, I, I watched a bit of um, an interview with him and Ben Shapiro. It was a real meeting of intellectual giants. And he was um, just saying how he he's almost like, a, I, I don't want to just throw this word around because everyone does, but like 
fascist. Like it doesn't seem totally inappropriate with him. Like he actually has some pretty bizarre beliefs and like Ben Shapiro, who is at least nominally like a libertarian where he has, he at least, you know, defends his uh, view of the world using um, libertarian principles, at least some of the time, you know, yeah. he was trying to defend these kind of common sense libertarian principles. And like Berlinski was just straightforwardly rejecting them, you know, not like, yeah. Oh, the real libertarian position is this. He's just like, no, I don't care about that. Um, it was actually <laughs> kind of interesting, but yeah, I, th I think that he does have like a pretty straightforwardly elitist view. So I wouldn't really expect him to be honest if he was an atheist, but just thought it was good. But in that interview, he seemed to express like, I'm not an atheist. I do believe in God. I just don't, it's not very fervent, you know, and I don't have any religious practice and I've never had a religious experience and so on and so forth. Yeah. Right. Which I guess could, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, look, could you be a, um, you know, could you be intellectually convinced of theism, but not like feel the emotional draw of religiosity? I get, you know, you could, uh, on the other hand, at a certain point, like it does kind of, ping some radar like okay so i'm not gonna go to church i'm not gonna act on this in any way right <laughs> but just trust me like I, I really do think this is all right i think it's true and it has no discernible impact on my behavior or my life <laughs> <laughs> yeah fair enough all right well let's uh with that uh i guess uh let's uh let's get started um I should say, by the way, since I didn't say it when I uh, when I first introduced you, that you're the host of uh, Walden Pod and also the uh, Counter Apologetics podcast. People can check those out. But let's get going. Thank you all very much for being here. I would like to thank Larry Taunton and the Fixed Point Foundation for their outstanding hospitality. <laughs> I love how he just doesn't know how to handle it. Yeah. My pleasure of being allowed to bask in the radiance of his reputation. Feel like uh, Hitchens would have been able to do something with that. You got to say something to break the awkward silence. poisons everything. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm perfectly aware, and you should be too, that that proposition is fully compatible with the proposition that religion poisons something. Were Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins tomorrow to announce that they were prepared to invade hell in order to roust a variety of pederastic priests, I would wish them well, although for reasons of personal inconvenience, I could not join them. <laughs> in some respects, as Dr. Johnson once said, the proposition that atheism poisons everything hardly requires a defense. The inquiry is not needed, he said. The last date at which atheism was a possibility in social thought was also the last date in which it was a plausibility in social thought. I ask you to cast your mind back, oh, around 1790, 1791 in France, Paris, in front of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And standing there, somewhat elaborated by my historical imagination, is Robespierre, reed, thin, narrow, green-eyed, fanatical, rabbit as a bat, and Danton, large, boisterous, remarkably eloquent. And they're watching, or they're looking at Notre Dame, and one guy says to the other, what should we do with this pile of Gothic junk? 
And the answer is, let's rename it. Good idea, what should we call it? Each man was hoping they would call it after themselves, but that was not to be. And Robespierre, Robespierre came up with a wonderful idea, we'll call it the Temple of Reason. Good thinking, his companion said, the Temple of Reason, that works splendidly, it means nothing, but it works splendidly. We might as well have called it the Temple of Evidence, Temple of Rationality. What should we do next, was the question. And the inevitable answer, the answer known from historical circumstances, well, let's go out and kill a whole lot of people. And that's exactly what they did. Once they had renamed Notre Dame the Temple of Reason, it was relatively easy to go out and kill 50,000 innocent men, women, and children. That, I submit to you, is the nature of the proposition we are discussing. 1851, 60 or 70 years later, an age of remarkable progress, enlightenment, wonderful sense of dawning material possibility, Matthew Arnold, in a poem entitled Dover Beach, reflected on the decline of religious faith in Europe, the melancholy, long-withdrawing raw. He didn't see anything particularly optimistic in that withdrawal. And he could think to say to himself and to his readers only this, only this, ah, my beloved, let us be true to one another. My beloved, true to one another. For the world which lies about us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, hath neither really joy, nor light, nor love, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help for pain, and we are caught as on a darkling plain, swept by confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night. This is a prophetic declaration from the heart of the progressive enlightened 19th century. In 1914, surveying the carnage that was to come, the Foreign Secretary of Great Britain said, again prophetically, the lights are going out all over Europe. The lights, what a strange word. We shall not see them lit again in our time. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that the 20th century was a record in Germany, in Russia, in China, in Cambodia, and elsewhere, not only of remarkable stupidity, brutality, and violence, but of unparalleled brutality, stupidity, and violence. And each of the regimes, each of the regimes behind this remarkable decay of civilization had two features in common, two characteristics we should bear in mind. In the first place, the men guiding these regimes and their entourage did not believe for a moment there was any power higher than their own. And they acted on that assumption. And in the second place, in the mass murders they conducted, they were aided and supported by any number of crackpot scientific disciplines. That makes for a character, characteristic combination. In the case of the Nazis, the scientific disciplines were derived from biology, and especially from Darwinian biology. In 1937, having murdered 70,000 handicapped men, women, and children, the Nazis released a film, and on the background of the film, the narrator says in terms of solemn incomprehension, 
my goodness, we have sinned against the law of natural selection. The law of natural selection. What could that mean? We have sinned against the law of natural selection. The communists, of course, had an equally crackpot theory that they derived from Marxian economics. The two crack potteries joining in one deeply repugnant stream. As all of you know, atheism today is not simply the private doctrine of a handful of individuals, it's become a social movement. And as a social movement, it has been advanced chiefly by the scientific community, certainly in the United States, but to a large extent in Europe too. Uh, some of this is adventitious. A few popular writers, such as Richard Dawkins, discovered that by writing books indicating that science has shown that God does not exist, well, they could make a fortune. I'm very sorry I wasn't there to join them. I didn't think of it at the time. I'm quite sure that someone now is writing a book how margarine science shows that God does not exist. But the inevitable consequences of this degree of atheism within the scientific community has involved a deformation of scientific thought, quite striking in its character and its extent. After all, the sciences, if we restrict our attention to the serious sciences, and those may be found in mathematics or in mathematical physics in no other place, then we must recognize that the serious sciences have nothing to say about the existence of God, either in their premises or in their conclusion. What a remarkable fact. People are writing books how physics shows that God does not exist, but physics has nothing to say about the existence of God. The aching questions that trouble the human imagination about which the sciences, when seriously considered, are resolutely silent, these remain just where they were. And the religious tradition, especially the Judeo-Christian religious tradition, has offered a coherent body of belief and doctrine by which they can be explained. Do we understand why the universe arose 14 million? No, we don't. Do we understand why it's there at all? No, we have no idea. Do we understand how life emerged on Earth? Not a prayer right now. Do we understand the complexity of life? We can't even begin to describe a living creature in anything resembling precise terms. Recent article in Science Digest, cell division requires 4,000 coordinated proteins acting together. What a remarkable statement. What a wealth of information we possess about biology. What an abundant lack of understanding we have about living systems. Do we understand why the laws of nature are true? No, we have no idea. Do we understand the miracle of analytic continuation in physics when certain kinds of functions can be pushed forward into the future contrary to all experience? Do we understand why the universe remains stable from moment to moment? The medievals pondered this question, ladies and gentlemen, and they came to the conclusion, and I quote a medieval theology, theologian, that God is everywhere conserving the world. What a remarkable declaration. Can we do without it? Can we do without it? Do we have an explanation for the continuity and stability of the universe? There is one paper that I know in the literature by Freeman Dyson that addresses the stability of matter. But beyond that, everything is enigmatic. How can we propose? Can we, can we pause for a moment there? To rule out of court in that—that that is a pretty shocking admission of ignorance on his part. If I take it at face value, like that, he seems to think that no one has addressed 
the problem of induction except for Freeman Dyson in one paper. Uh, <laughs> that's a pretty bizarre statement honestly like i mean he he does seem to be saying that i mean maybe he's saying no one's had a convincing discussion of induction <laughs> beyond yeah, uh, the dyson I, guy but i will also say so i mean while we're paused for the last few minutes um i not very well uh and without certainly without you know, articulated the structure of the arguments very quickly, but very well, right? You know, but like he, uh, uh, he has kind of shifted gears from this like atheism is going to make everybody a murderous Jacobin argument to actually doing some philosophy of religion and saying like, well, um, I mean, certainly his, you know, like there was a lot of like there are a lot of declarations of all the things that he thinks that science is ignorant about because the only uh mathematics and mathematical physics are the only thing he'll he'll accept as serious science no biology no chemistry none of that but um uh but like in the discussion about the stability of the universe right you know why it, it continues to exist from moment to moment um he put it in a weird way but it sure sounded like he was saying that the best explanation of that is that there's a all-powerful god who's like willing it to continue to exist from moment to moment mm -hmm. yeah it sounded i mean it sounded like he was confusing like two or maybe three issues i'm not sure like yeah one thing he might have been talking about is existential inertia which is just why anything continues to exist or like is it possible for things to continue exist continue in existence without god sustaining them like without mm -hmm. some kind of sustaining cause it sounded like he might have been talking about that but it also sounded like he was talking about sort of um the stability of matter like as in just regularity like why don't the laws of nature uh completely change um for every moment of existence <laughs> and you know so i mean those are two separate issues but it seems like he was conflating them maybe but either way he seems to think that god is a convincing explanation of why the laws of nature remain fixed at least for long chapters of the universe's history and also uh seems to just be rejecting any notion of existential inertia like there has to be a god who sustains everything in existence at all moments um not a very i mean he just is kind of saying it he's not really offering any reasons supporting that particular claim but yeah i, I mean it's i mean I, it's almost not worth it but i mean I, I guess i will just say like okay um so his his bar for evidence is high enough that um i mean it sounds like he's just like sweepingly rejecting all of modern biology and like several other sciences also but at the same time he'll accept god did it as you know like an adequate explanation right i mean because because the way he framed it was well you know this remarkable statement by this medieval theologian is you know god is God did it. You know, can we have we can we do without that? <laughs> right? So it's like okay, but like is that actually like why why does that count as an adequate explanation whereas like some scientific theory that maybe you can't have absolute certainty about but you know certainly you know coheres well with all of our evidence and has explanatory power and et cetera, et cetera, is not yeah, and I mean, he doesn't consider any alternatives. He doesn't um, explain like, okay, let's consider, you know, some of the responses to this idea that God needs to be the sustaining 
you know, force in all of existence. Like he doesn't, he doesn't even acknowledge that people have talked about that or that many theists don't adopt that particular argument. You know, like that argument has been around for a long time and many theists are not convinced by it. Like not all theists believe that God is sustaining everything in existence at all moments. Like many theists will go along with the, you know, I mean, like, I want to say atheistic critiques, but really it's just philosophical critiques of those kinds of arguments. And yeah, they they think that rocks can continue existing without God sustaining them in existence. And he, you know, Berlinski seems to think that we can't do without a God who's sustaining things moment to moment. That rocks would not just keep existing um, if it weren't for God making it the case. Well, as was pointed out in the chat, I mean, to or at least the, the point was made in the chat to put it slightly differently. I mean, there is a sort of internal theistic even reason to think that there's something funny about that account, right? I mean, that like you're talking, so are you say, say there's a designer who can't put things together well enough that, you know, that they won't like just um, explode at any moment that, you know, that you're not like, you know, specifically engaged in an act of will to keep them together. Yeah, I mean, there's that, and there's just, I, I'm still kind of annoyed by his saying that, like, matter being kind of predictable is just like, you know, that just stumps atheists. We've never thought about this. We've never considered this. There's no answer. And also, there's a theistic answer. You know, I mean, that is kind of a pet peeve of mine is when people present things as like, well, here's the theistic answer to this, and here's the atheistic answer to this. And, you know, it's very rare that there are you know, dividing lines that are like that. You know, there are theists and atheists on both sides of pretty much every issue. Yeah, I mean, you'd think so, right? Because because uh, there are like a bunch of things you can say about all of these that would be compatible with either thinking or not thinking, you know, that yeah. there's, uh, there's a God. Um, yeah, so, I, yeah, okay. So, I mean, they have, he's, you know, he's done this sort of, well, science isn't perfect, uh, therefore, you know, you should just accept the, you know, the sentence God did it as a, uh, as, as an adequate, you know, like the best explanation of the table so far, again, as far as I can tell, that was the argument just now. So that's the, that's the atheism is false argument, but where he started yeah. was the, if atheism is true, that would be horrible argument, which is, you know, it's, I think better to keep those two analytically much more separate than he is, but like is also, you know, as I think with a lot of things, right? You know, that like, I think it's maybe like a question's worth independently thinking about, right? I mean, it's like the same way that if you're, I don't know, talking about like free will and determinism, right? It's, it's worth at some point in the discussion, like taking a beat to think about how bad it would be or not be, as the case might be, you know, right. if there's no if there's no free will. And as far as I could tell, the argument was, well, um, Robespierre, Hitler, Stalin, and, <laughs> um, you know, I, much like actually the, you know, science can't explain how the universe doesn't blow up from moment to moment without God argument. Um, he's, I mean, the, the obvious objection is that he's only considering one side of the ledger, right? That like, that like these, these are the, even if his historical premises were all correct, which they are not right. Like that he's only considering, it's like, okay, here are the bad things that atheists in power have done. But surely we'd have to compare that, you know, to, uh, to, you know, like to the bad things that, you know, theists in power have done before we could even start to think about, right, you know, like drawing any conclusions about from this, 
which, you know, I mean, I assume Hitchens will get into this, so we don't need to, you know, rattle it off, but right, you know, it's a long list. Um, and, you know, in particular, like with the, exa- you know, example he started with, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I listened to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast. I listened to the French Revolution, uh, you know, season of that. A factoid that Duncan mentions very quickly and doesn't dwell on nearly as long as I thought he should have, honestly, is like, okay, but the, like, in Poland in like the 1790s, there was a attempt by local Jacobin sympathizers to, you know, to, uh, to have an imitation revolution there. And like more people were killed in the counter-revolutionary terror crushing that than were killed in all of the revolutionary terror in France, uh, which, which certainly doesn't like morally excuse the latter, but I mean, it does, but it is like pretty relevant, right? Cause like, I'm pretty sure that the, people carried out the white terror in Poland were, you know, extremely devout Catholics. Um, and also like, it is worth mentioning maybe that, okay. Robespierre, Hitler, Hitler Stalin, only one of those guys was actually an atheist, right? Mm-hmm. Jo- Joseph Stalin. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to say he was in fact, a atheist Hitchens in his book, sort of goes through some weird contortions to, you know, to get out of having to, to sort of accept that, you know, which I think is silly, but like at the same time, but like, again, Hitler, nope. Um, you know, was, was into all kinds of like weird, you know, mystical stuff. Um, uh, and ropes beer. Nope. Right. Like, and, and in fact, the way he presented this was kind of slippery at the beginning, right. Cause he's talking about the, uh, Notre Dame Cathedral being um, uh, renamed the Temple of Reason or something. Yeah, yeah. And so the and the way he presents the story, it's like, well, they did that, then they could kill all these people. It's like, okay, for one thing, I'm pretty sure, you know, there were executions going on left. I, I mean, I guess I'm not certain about this. I'd have to check, but my I would put down somebody that there were executions going on left and right, you know, before that <laughs> happened, you know. But like, two more importantly. Um, yeah, it was really the Temple of Reason. They were trying to suppress the Catholic Church, which had strongly sided with the, you know, with, with the anti-revolutionary forces. Um, but like anti-Catholic does not equal atheist, right? Like this is, right, yeah. and, and Robespierre was absolutely not an atheist. Um, in my fact, Protestant, my Protestant grandfather is not an atheist. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like lots of people in the world are you know, anti-Catholic, <laughs> but not atheists. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, Robespierre was one of them. Right. I mean, he, uh, I mean, he was kind of like a weird, you know, enlightenment deist who, you know, had a, um, like, you know, but like he was, uh, who sort of tried to start this, like, stay like kind of at the height of the of, of you know i mean very shortly before his former confederates turned out to be killed him you know because they thought that he'd sort of gone crazy with power you know but like he kind of tried to start his own little religion right the uh which was which was not a non-theistic religion right you know it was the uh the uh cult of the supreme being you know and uh um and in fact i mean if you read like the was it the uh Hillary Mantel novel, A Place of Greater Safety. She gets into this there, right? I mean, he um, he was actually very critical, right, of, of Jacobins who were atheists, right? You know, in fact, kind of for David Berlinski-ish reasons, hmm. right? You know, that it's like, well, you can't, you know, you can't take away, you know, belief in God altogether. That's going to, you know, that's going to end badly, whatever. So, 
Um, so he's just wrong about the history. Uh, seems, you know, seems maybe relevant, but like, even if he was right about the history, it's like, okay, like, I mean, surely we're nowhere, like, nowhere close to the point where you could, like, you've examined enough evidence to have an accounting of, like, you know, what atheism has to do with this or what the causation is or, yeah. or any of that stuff. Yeah, it's just like, you know, some historians, as far as I understand it, think that things other than atheism uh, had to do with the French Revolution. I don't know if this is a fringe position or not, but I think there were other factors um, that led to the French Revolution. But I also wanted to mention just how weird it is to make like a blanket anti-French Revolution statement and like stake out that position like he seems to be doing. But as I mentioned earlier, this is in line with his politics. Like he's he's not just singling out the excesses of the French Revolution. Like He's, I'm pretty sure, just against the French Revolution, <laughs> which is a pretty <laughs> weird position. But I think that, I mean, based on the Ben Shapiro interview that I kind of skipped around through, it seems like that's consistent with his other views. But totally. as, I, as I understand his argument so far, since the motion is, um, does a, uh, atheism poisons everything? I think he started by arguing that it poisons, you know, our social order and it poisons like governmental leadership and stuff because there's no higher authority if atheism is true. So they're the highest authority. Um, so it, it poisons things in that way. And I think now he moved on to it poisons science because you can't really do science without right. theism. So I think he's just saying it poisons, uh, you know, the governmental structure and it poisons the scientific structure. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think that is the structure of what he's saying. Um, and <sighs> yeah, it's, um, it is like, there is also something just a little bit funny about the fact that, you know, he's saying, well, look, these uh, totalitarian, you know, dictators, um, supposedly, were atheists. Uh, so therefore, they felt empowered to, you know, to commit all sorts of crimes because there was no one above them to, to judge them, you know. But, uh, but like, I mean... But the, the people who were overthrown by the French Revolution, who <laughs> were definitely not atheists, they they don't count against the point I'm making. Yeah, exactly. It's like so so uh, like this this is the entire kind of history of, of French you know feudalism you know with with you know very closely called bound up with the Catholic Church, uh, all of the blood spilled by by that regime you know the Ancien regime like that none of that counts. I mean I, I don't know. I mean I'm pretty sure. Caligula believed in the gods of Rome, you know, like that's the, uh, the, the evidence that the, uh, that belief in a higher power, uh, prevents people from, um, you know, prevents people who have great amounts of earthly power from abusing it is pretty, um, you know, non-existent. And, and it's also funny cause it's like, I don't know if you're really, if you're really, uh, concerned about abuses of power, then maybe you should take a second look at that whole French revolution thing, you know, that, they, uh, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure the actual causes had something to do with, you know, unhappiness about, you know, uh, power structures and the way they're abused. But yeah. And you made an important point too. I'd kind of, I, uh, I missed the first time I skipped around this was like, you know, I mean, deism was kind of more of a thing at this point. Like atheism was not really, prevalent as far as i understand yeah. it like until later it was it was deism so i mean like it's kind of weird to even be associating atheism to the with the french revolution to the extent that he's doing 
Yeah, I, I mean, my understanding, I wouldn't claim to be any sort of expert on this, my understanding is that there were people who were, went all the way to atheism in the French Revolution, of which Robespierre was not one, uh, but that was like a you know position that was present there. But you're right, I mean, like most people in this era, in most places who were like religious dissenters, you know, did not go all the way to... Uh, to atheism, and then it would be particularly weird if it was if his argument was going to be not just like atheism poisons everything, but like <laughs> doubting the authority of the Pope poisons everything or something <laughs> like that, right? Because you know, again, it does that that uh, that would seem to fit oddly with his own lack of religiosity. Yeah, deism poisons everything. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's uh, uh, let's keep going. In advance. A hypothesis that not only answers to the human heart in many respects, but that answers to genuine intellectual needs in other respects. When one sees the American scientific community like a herd of wildebeests trotting across a fruited plain, it's very reasonable to ask, are they going someplace or are they fleeing from someplace? And I think the overwhelmingly obvious answer is they are fleeing. They are fleeing from an idea that they reject for a variety of reasons. Not only is the inquiry about atheism not necessary in terms of the history of social thought, it's not necessary in terms of the outlines of scientific thought. But there is a last question to be addressed, perhaps the most important for you and me. The cosmologist Joel Premack asked an interesting question. He asked, what compels the electron to follow the laws of nature? Good question, I don't know. But Heinrich Himmler, who had presided over the destruction of churches and synagogues throughout Europe and was the mastermind behind the extermination of the Jewish people, asked a very similar question in 1944. When confronted with the onerous treaty obligations the German state had adopted with respect to its own satraps, he asked insouciantly, but pregnantly, after all, what compels us to keep our promises? Moral relativism is very often <clears throat> derided as an unhappy consequence of atheism. I don't think moral relativism is a particularly deep issue, but I do think the issue I do think the issue of what compels us to keep our promises is very relevant. I have in front, of, in front of me rather a remarkable button. If you should press it, if you should press it, yours would be untold riches and whatever else you desire. The only consequence to pressing it beyond your happiness is the death of an anonymous Chinese peasant. Who among us would you trust with this button? Sit still, Christopher. <laughs> Thank you. Christopher Hitchens. I feel like um, part of being an atheist is tapping a sign once a week that says, atheism does not equal nihilism or relativism. <laughs> or Darwinism or social Darwinism. And those things are distinct, by the way, or communism or fascism or determinism or materialism. <laughs> like, it's just like, he doesn't really see, he's like, yeah, all these are just kind of the same thing, obviously. So I'm just going to like have this borderline unintelligible mishmash of my, I don't know, personal <laughs> anxieties about them. And then just like half formulated philosophical questions and then uh, end on a really weird 
lame joke. <laughs> like, I'm not even trying to be mean. That was just a weird opening statement. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and the problem is that uh, Berlinski is so like, like give it like his style of presentation does not lend itself to uh, to like clearly identifying what argument he's trying to make. Um, I mean, I think you, you know, I think you did a good job earlier in, in terms of like the structure of his overall presentation, but like at the end there, I mean, the way he said the thing about moral relativism is the big issue is confusing, but you know, given what he said right afterwards, um, cause there are at least two ways you could read that argument about the button that would, would press the, you know, that would kill the Chinese peasant, which by the way, let's just take a, take a beat to appreciate that uh, being willing to kill Chinese peasants is something that nobody who believes in God has ever been willing, you know, has ever done. Right. You know, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I just remembered um, that guy, that uh, psycho who went on Tucker Carlson's show and was just yes. like, we need to be sitting on a throne of Chinese skulls. And I guarantee you that guy hates atheism. I guarantee you that guy would totally be on the uh, atheism poisons everything side. Totally. Yeah. And, you know, I like, look, um, also, um, you know, the, I mean, if you, uh, <laughs> you know, the, I mean, if you just think about the entire history of the, the Cold War, right, you know, from um, armed conflicts, you know, with the Korean War, U.S. and China were on opposite sides uh, through, um, you know, the, uh, constant threats of mutual total annihilation uh, through, um, uh, you know, the, you know, coups uh, against, you know, against democratically elected governments through, you know, et cetera, you know, bombing of, you know, uh, bombing of Cambodia, et cetera, et cetera. All this is on my mind because I have something the nation's coming out tomorrow that talks about Henry Kissinger. But like, and, um, but like, look, what was by far, especially in the early decades of that, like what was by far the most common ideological justification, right? You know, that it was like all justified by the need to, you know, to defeat godless communism. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I mean, that was, it, that was how, like 50s, 60s. I mean, that's how they always put it. I mean, not only that, but I, I was just thinking as he was saying, you know, I have this button in my hand. It's like, okay, well, I have a button in my hand. And if you press it, um, it will drop a nuclear bomb on Nagasaki for literally no reason. Yeah. <laughs> like, was that a series of atheists who made that decision? Like, it just, I, I don't understand this desperate need to like connect atheism with, you know, with mass murder. Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up for like 10 seconds. No, it doesn't. And it's also, so, so, okay. So I think there are two ways you could read the Chinese peasant killing button. Um, one is a moral argument, right? That the atheist wouldn't have a moral reason not to do that. And which I think is, you know, maybe more easily, um, you know, more easily dealt with uh, that because, uh, you know, euthyphro problem, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, but then, um, but then the other one maybe is that like, well, the reason that people wouldn't do it is that um you know they would is that they would think that like forget morality they would just think that god would disapprove of it and would therefore punish them right so it'd be like fear of hell 
uh, maybe you know would uh, would stop them from doing it. But then, I mean, then that seems to get back to everything we've been saying. That's like, well, at that point, surely that's an empirical question, right? Are people who believe that actually less likely to commit atrocities? And historically, it doesn't really seem like it. Yeah, I, I can't really say. There's, I mean. I, I, he did mention like, you know, 20th century atrocities and, um, you know, that, that seems to be one of his main points in defense of atheism poisoning everything. But I feel like something that's not often brought up in these discussions on either side is like, you know, there is this exponential growth, you know, this explosion of the human population, which just necessarily means that like everything happens on a larger scale. Um, right. But whenever people point to these 20th century atrocities, it's like, do you realize how much how many, there were so many more people like um so just everything oh, yeah. happened on a bigger scale and secondly there were all these technological advancements like with tanks and missiles and firearms and nuclear weapons and poison gas and fighter planes it's like do you think maybe the dramatic increase in you know weapons technology and the dramatic increase in population size might have had something to do with like the uh, the scale of the 20th century atrocities and not just because you know, uh, atheism was on the rise within academia. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, absolutely right. Um, like, yeah, I mean, right. Even with the Holocaust, right? That the uh, that like basically, you know, Fordist industrial, you know, uh, procedure was was being applied. I mean, it's not like the you know, I mean, it's not like the Romans never wiped anybody out, right? You know, like they have a you exactly. know, but they couldn't do, they couldn't do it nearly as efficiently. Um, and yeah, so I think that's how, yeah, you know, God, yeah, Vietnam, you know, um, but then like, there's also, you know, Steven Pinker is a smug and annoyed reactionary who believes lots of things I don't like, but he's not totally wrong about (laughs) the, you know, historical claims about violence, right? That it's like people have this idea because they're, you know, it's like, a little bit of chronological provincialism that it's like the stuff that's more recent, you know, like, like feels more significant, whatever. But it's like, people have this idea that there's this like big uptick in like human brutality, you know, in the 20th century. It's like, yeah, in a certain way that I think you just identified. Yeah. That there's, that there's like some of the worst things that happen, you know, had, vastly higher body counts because they you know the the technological efficiency larger populations etc but like there are a lot of respects in which the you know like the kinds of violence that people were more were most likely to die of throughout like most of human history have actually gotten not nearly as bad you know and uh in the last, you know, the last couple hundred years, right? I mean, that they, uh, that, um, like, you know, I mean, there are, there are certain forms of, of violence that were like way more routine, you know, uh, prior to, uh, prior to the, the modern world. And by the way, I mean, my, my big beef with Pinker is just that, like, I think his conclusion is bad because like his conclusion often seems to be like, well, there's been progress, therefore you should be happy rather than like, there's been progress there. And wouldn't it be nice if we had even more progress to work out <laughs> that? You know? Yeah. I, I mean, I think we're in agreement on that point. Like Steven Pinker, who uh, 
you know, was a visitor of Jeffrey Epstein's private island, um, is not totally wrong about some of the uh, things he says. Like, yeah, but, but yeah, the conclusions he draws and the the things that he, like the, the things that he attributes the success of, you know, modernity to, like at least the, the aspects that are worth like celebrating. Yeah. Like, yeah, he does seem to not, I mean, it's, I just disagree with him on the cause, I guess, but I, it's not like I disagree with, you know, the data or anything where it's like, yeah, there are certain types of violence that you're less likely to experience um, in the modern world than you were, you know, thousands of years ago. Like, yeah, that's that's yeah. definitely true. But as a nice counterpoint to Pinker, though, um, Rucker Bregman did write this book called Humankind that um, yeah. was really good and, and worth checking out for people who want to see, um, you know, sort of a nice contrast to the to the Pinker thesis. Yeah, fair enough. Um Oh, I guess last point before we move on from this, I just, a point that like, uh, you know, a point that I, I don't think Hitchens is going to make here from what I can recall, could, and I don't think he does in general, but I always really want him to, you know, because it's like such a simple point. Uh, I actually did make this the uh, the one chance I've ever had to uh, – do a debate with somebody who Hitchens had uh, with uh, Douglas Wilson. And I did make this with Douglas Wilson, which is like, look, if you want to say that like atheism breeds, you know, like personal immorality, like, I mean, some of these Scandinavian countries have the highest rates of religious non-belief in the Western world. Um, and also, much, much lower rates of violent crime now. Because I'm not a hack. I'm not going to claim that like atheism, you know, caused that, right? You right, know, that yeah. like that would be silly, right? But it does um, but it does at least suggest that atheism, or at least atheism in connection with uh with more egalitarian economic policies, uh is uh <laughs> is consistent with not having a mass outbreak. Of, of everybody decided that because God is dead, everything is permitted and, you know, they, they should just like, you know, do whatever they want to whoever they want, whatever. Yeah. No, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's just like, it, it does prove though that religion is not this like social glue that is necessary for a functioning society. Yeah, like exactly. it's not to say atheism caused their success. Like, no, obviously sure. it didn't, but it does prove that religion is not this necessary component of any functioning society. But, you know, this is when, um, the Tom Holland types or Jordan Peterson types say, well, they're actually Christian, you know, or they're just kind of like riding off the high of Christianity. And like, you know, it's only a matter of time before it, uh, you know, collapses, I guess, because, you know, you need it to, to function, but you know, that yeah, kind which of stuff. Is, but that's, that's always amazing when people like trot that out. Cause it's like, okay, well, hold up. Right. So like, you know, the, um, like people being guillotined in the 1790s by people who, you know, by executioners who are by and large, not even atheists, whatever, but like, that's the, you know, that could be attributable to de-Christianization, but like hundreds of years later, if everybody still acted decently, that's because like the de-Christianization hasn't had enough time to kick in. <laughs> I just want to point out that someone in the chat said, um, everyone knows gingers don't have souls. And I demand that this hate speech be removed from the chat immediately or else I will be leaving. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Let's keep going. Thank you, Professor Polinsky. Um, thank you, Larry, for the very generous introduction. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming. Um, at short notice, 
I can only hope to match the Parisian urbanity of my rival in knowledge of um, French ecclesiastical architecture and its cosmic implications and in modern <laughs> and in the ready access to modern uh, 20th century poetry will. Let's take instead of Notre Dame and the famous story of its deconsecration by Danton and Robespierre, the erection of the other most prominent uh, Eglise of Paris, the one that you see on your way in from the airport, the grand uh, wedding cake uh, style erection of uh, Sacré-Cœur, the Sacred Heart, built on top of the commanding heights of Montmartre, built why? Built to celebrate the massacre of Parisian workers and intellectuals after the Paris Commune of 1871 had tried to save the honor of a humiliated France that had thrown itself officially and was thrashing at the feet of uh, Bismarck as Prussian invaders. Many, many more people were killed in that massacre and that terrible reprisal than were killed in the whole of the terror. But it was, and it wasn't enough that, that was the case, but a whole church had to be consecrated by the French religious and clerical establishment and their political allies to celebrate the massacre of their fellow countrymen. Does this prove that religion poisons everything? By no means does it do so. Does it help to curtain raise and to understand the terrible century which Professor Berlinski and I have both studied? Yes, to a degree it does. <clears throat> this French right wing, clerical right wing, goes on to the terrible arraignment and frame up of Captain Alfred Dreyfus, possibly the most serious miscarriage of justice in most, thorough, most thoroughgoingly justified and advanced uh, by a political establishment in modern European history. This and the sides taken in it determine who will be who in the terrible war of 1914, which Dermot McCullough, admired by Larry Taunton, among others, as a historian of Christianity and very much venerated by me in his magnificent history, new history of the first 2,000 years, of Christianity describes as a theocratic war. He says the, the Christendom, as we used to understand it, as our fathers and grandfathers used to understand it, ends in 1914 when every country in Europe goes to war in the name of its own God or church. King George VI is the King Emperor and the head of the Church of England. Uh, the Tsar of Russia is the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, is considered not to be a God, but a little more than a human being. You know the rest of it. It's the first time that Gott mit uns is put on the belt buckles, but not the last time of the German army. And this is the end of Christendom and the curtain raiser to fascism. Without that terrible war of Christendom, it's impossible that the totalitarian movements that became such a threat to civilization could have arisen in the first place. And just to stay with France, it is the Vichy collaborationist regime, the rounder up of France's Jews, <clears throat> the massacre, the massacre agent in the French colonies, the collaborator with the Third Reich, that strikes from the French coinage the noble words liberty, liberté, égalité, fraternité, and replaces them with the Catholic slogan, famille, patrie, travail. And under this, France fell to the lowest point of its history. So I would beware, sir, of uh, deriving your argument about atheism from the coincidences of French ecclesiastical a design, but I'm with you on the larger point that you made, and I'll also try and illustrate it from the work actually of a great Anglo-Catholic, Anglo-American poet, Thomas Stearns Eliot, who in his choruses from The Rock asks the question, where is the knowledge we have lost in information? 
is the question that has to preoccupy us all. When I am told, and I suppose in one way you could accuse me of taking it on faith, because I couldn't prove it for myself, and having had it demonstrated to me, I probably couldn't repeat the demonstration. But having been told by Stephen Hawking and Lawrence Krauss and all of the leaders in the field of physics that we now estimate a total of 400 billion galaxies, that's not universes or solar systems, 400 billion galaxies, and asked to decide the question with one sun every second since the Big Bang, or one star, we only call our own star the sun in an apotropaic, propitiating way that comes from our, our terrorized ancestors. A star that size goes out every second. So that's quite a lot while I'm talking. And has been blowing up and going out ever since the first moment of the Big Bang. This is more than we can handle. We cannot say we know about this. It can be argued that all that was indeed set in motion with the intention of producing on a very small planet in a very small solar system in a tiny neglected suburb of a relatively unimportant galaxy, a race of beings, primate, but capable of language and reason, who believe that if they make the right propitiations, they will live forever. You could say that all that gigantic explosion and destruction was designed with that in mind. But I wouldn't be able to take your word for it. And it seems to me that the burden is not on me. I don't have to prove that kind of thing. I don't make the equivalent claim that the religious person has to make. The religious person doesn't have to just say, of course God wanted it that way and that's the way it is. Because a design of that kind doesn't just imply a designer, it implicates a designer. It means if there is such a designer, he's fantastically destructive and wasteful. As he is in microcosm, 99.8% of all species ever on this earth have already become extinct. This is a pitiless, wasteful, capricious designer. I can't prove that that isn't the way he wanted it to be. But I can say that there's an, an implication for the designer. But again, it's not me who's saying that if you believe in it, you have the means of grace and the hope of glory and the possibility of redemption and vicarious salvation and forgiveness of sins through human sacrifice and eternal life. We can't attempt and don't try anything like that. So the, 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 excuse me, the agnostic or the deist is not arbitrating between equal kinds of certainty. Those who are certain in the face of all this uncertainty and unknowability, the strongest ground of agreement between me and David, uh, are bound to say, if they're arbitrating it properly, the first people to leave the island are the ones who say they already know enough, that they know why this is happening, that they know the mind of God. Those who claim the certainty are out of the argument. The argument then goes on between deists, agnostics, and atheists. How can we make sense of what we know, and how can we, in doing so, be true to the great principle adumbrated by Socrates, which is this, you must educate yourself by striving constantly, <coughs> excuse me, as hard as you can to get to the point of understanding your own ignorance. Only then can you claim to have any acquaintance with knowledge at all. That's the appropriate and due modesty that the founder of our school 
of thought brought to the question. And there's no proof that Socrates ever existed. I tend to think from the eyewitness accounts and secondhand ones that he did. It would be quite hard to confect such a personality, but it doesn't matter to me whether he existed or not. We have the method. He taught us how to think. If I was to tell Larry after our drive down through Shenandoah yesterday and our joint reading of the first passages of the Gospel of St. John, that the Jesus who is so real to him is in fact or could be proved to be only a fictitious person, a mythical individual, it would have to ruin Comrade Taunton's day. Not just his day, his life. It would extinguish his hope. Is there not something slightly fanatical in placing such large claims, remember the size of the claims I'm, I'm talking about, on such a slender and narrow basis? Now we'll get to the, the, we'll get to the Nazis in my rebuttal, if that's all right. That won't take frightfully long, and for the totalitarians. And we'll have to do, can we be moral without believing fantastic things? That won't take too long either. And we can, we can uh, uh, do a number of other things too that I have so far left unaddressed, but believe me, not forgotten. But I just wanted to see if I could introduce just for once a new element into this uh, argument. You must, when you next go to Washington, go to the newest museum in the United States. It's the newly opened Hall of Human Origins in the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. It's, by the way, paid for by Mr. Koch, the former libertarian candidate for president and founder and uh, paymaster of the Tea Party movement. So I invite you to join me once again in saying, in some way, this really is a great country. Uh, here is the greatest gallery paying, giving the proper account of evolution and our true origins that has ever been erected in any country. The bit that has fascinated me and taken me back to it again and again is this. Until 17,000 years ago only in one case, and not many more years than that in others, there were at least three other hominid or human species. Primates like us with large brain pans, language capacity, in the case of the Neanderthals very significantly, decorated graves, which suggests, if it doesn't insist upon the idea of a ritual and a religion, uh, they have genes in common with us, they are of our species, and they've left important traces. They weren't very well understood, or in some cases known at all, the case of the Flores Islanders of the Indonesian archipelago, only until very recently. But there they always were. They were our brothers and our sisters and our kin, and they had all these yearnings and hopes and terrors and fears. And they're not in Genesis. And they've had no one to visit their graves or do them honor until very recently, and as a result of scientific innovation and, and curiosity. And whatever gods they had abandoned them. And so I just think it's worth brooding, since we talk about ourselves as the objects of a tremendous cosmic and biological process that was set in motion, supervised, and if it's to be believed, uh, designed, intended. I just think we should take a moment of silence and think of our fellow humans, our fellow creatures, our fellow extinct, already extinct mem members of our species, to whom we might spare a little thought before we go on. I'm in your debt, and I'll be back. Thanks. I'm not quite sure 
what point he was making at the <laughs> with the uh the thing about uh, Charles Koch at the end, uh, I I will say that as as terrible as Hitchens' politics were at this point in his life, um, it's uh, oh, Lucy's standing there. Uh, you know he he did have quite a bit of contempt for the Tea Party, so you know I I, I don't think he thought that was a good thing. I think maybe he thought it was kind of funny. Right? I think he you was know, saying, the, um, in summary, America is a land of contrast. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, He's saying this evil dude, you know, created one of the best, uh, you know, exhibits on evolution by natural selection in in existence. Um, You know. Yeah, no, fair enough. Um, Yeah, so I I think that's the point. I mean, this is, yeah, I mean, even, yeah, even very late Hitchens, when he obviously has some, you know, I I think fairly repugnant, you know, conservative kind of foreign policy positions, uh, He's still doing things like writing, I think it's Slate about the, uh, uh, the, the, the rally that Glenn Beck organized in Washington, D.C. in uh, 2009, where he re- refers to it as the water world of white self-pity. And, you know, he's, he's not a, <laughs> uh, you know, he's not a fan, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that this is, um, you know, I, th- I think this is fine. I mean, it's like a little bit, I think it was a little bit unstructured. Uh, some of that might be a, um, a result of, you know, I mean, he's kind of trying to mirror and respond to all the stuff that Berl- you know, Berlinski had said, but, you know, he also wants it to be a real opening statement and not just the sort of, uh, you know, pedantic thing I might feel tempted to do where you just kind of go through it point by point. Um, I do, I think the, the strongest part to my mind, uh, which is actually impressive because, I mean, I assume it was impromptu that, you know, that, that he didn't have any particular reason to uh, to think that Berlinski was going to bring up French history. But yeah, I think the couple of minutes on French history at the beginning, you know, was probably the strongest part. And also, you know, the part that felt mo- more or most like he was kind of channeling sort of young socialist tensions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, near the end, I think he touched on like a really powerful argument. He didn't um, spell it out too much, but he sort of uh, talked about evolutionary history and he mentioned, you know, the incredible waste, but he also mentioned like the capriciousness and the like, uh, you know, brutality of that process. Um, and I wish he would have, you know, pulled on that thread a little more. But yeah, the idea that this omnipotent, benevolent God is going to bring about his very good creation through the process of evolution by natural selection is like fairly absurd when you contemplate the hundreds of millions of years of predation and carnivory and parasitism and languishing and just suffering and pain that's taken place. And God obviously didn't have to do it that way, but you know, he, he was also talking about the scale of the universe and if you could actually comprehend how large it was, you know, it just is like kind of crazy to think that um, we're any kind of focal point, you know, it just starts getting more and more laughable. Um, but yeah, I, I like the argument from evolutionary evil. Um, which is, yeah, which is, he, he which is I should say, the argument from evolution. My understanding is that uh, the reason that Charles Darwin became an agnostic uh, by the end of his life, um, when, you know, I mean, I think he was actually like a seminarian or had been considering becoming one at one point earlier, but the way in which, you know, his uh, biological investigation turned him into an agnostic wasn't like, Oh, this conflicts with a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter one because I mean I, I you know I'm sure any respectable you know mid to late 19th century you know Anglican you know could uh, could handle that right 
uh, it, it was the argument from evolutionary evil, right? It's like just just sort of contemplating just the the absolutely absurd waste of like all of the you know generations and generations and generations of you know creatures, you know, dying out, you know, as as uh, and you know and, and suffering, you know, as, as part of this excruciatingly slow evolutionary process. Yeah, I mean, it's a soul crushing amount of evil, but it's also just, I mean, what Darwin keyed in on as well was the design of evil, like evil being built into the design plan of nature, like where he was disturbed by these parasitic wasps that laid eggs and caterpillars and kept them alive, you know, as they ate their way out of the caterpillar. And he wrote, you know, that, that specifically um, was part of why he like couldn't believe in God. He's like, what, how could God, you know, create beings where just in virtue of their natural function, their faculties are aimed at producing suffering for other sentient creatures. Like right. that's not designed by a benevolent designer, obviously. Yeah. I remember. Uh, so my, uh, well, my graduate school professor, Quentin Smith, who's, who's now passed on, but he had a, in, um, uh, I remember reading a long, long time ago, a paper that he wrote making that exact point, you know, that you could run the entire problem of evil just with, um, you know, just on the basis of natural laws that uh, that you know impel some animals to uh, to to kill others in really painful ways, uh, and I think he kind of says at the beginning of the uh, that he got the idea for the paper because he was like staying in a cabin or something out in the middle of the woods, you know, like maybe while he was working on a book or something, and he was he was like you know listening to you know listening to some animal kill this some other animal out of the woods and like this this kind of you know, I mean, obviously, it's not original. You know, the the point, the underlying thought is not original to him. But you know, that's the you know, but like it really hit him that like this is a sort of um, underemphasized you know part of the uh, problem of evil. Yeah, that that was the paper that was called the argument from evil natural laws, I believe. That's but, right. Yep. Yeah, it was. I mean, that's that's a great paper and a great argument. Um, it's like there's something similar from Philippe Leon called the argument from teleological evil. Um, Quentin Smith's article is a lot more technical. Um, it's a yeah. lot less like uh, accessible for for a lay audience. But no, I, yeah, Quentin Smith was a genius, and he's uh, he's very uh, sorely missed. But yeah, that's a that's an amazing argument where he just says like, yeah, it's a law of nature that animals have to savagely kill and devour each other. But it didn't have to be that way. They could be herbivores. They could be, you know, scavengers. They could photosynthesize or something. We're talking about like an omnipotent god. So, the idea that that's the law of nature—that you have to savagely devour and eat other creatures—like <laughs> that's it's yeah. like, a horrible way to live. And like, there's no way that a benevolent designer would, um, you know, set up a system like that when there are obviously other options, especially when it's it's mostly. Cool suffering inflicted on animals. You know, it's not like these are moral agents who can grow and learn from the trials of their lives. Right. You know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. Which is enough of a problem, even with humans that, you know, that like, uh, you know, if, if you have an earthquake or something and, you know, a bunch of people die right away and a bunch of other people, you know, are like trapped under the rubble for a few days, they slowly, you know, die of thirst, you know, it's like, well, you know, maybe a few of them will get out and, maybe for the sake of argument they'll have some growth and evolution you know uh you know based on that but like the ones who died certainly won't right you know like uh, yeah the, uh, the eight-year-olds trapped under the rubble as they're dying of dehydration they're going to gain some really virtuous traits before they uh before they <laughs> the die. last five minutes of their <laughs> existence yeah exactly um and and yeah i mean how much more of a problem is it with the you know the um 
animals who, you know, have the capacity to suffer, but presumably not really the level of cognitive capacity that you have to like reflect on your experience and grow from it. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. when you contemplate, this has been happening for hundreds of millions of years. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's an, it's an incredible amount of, uh, you know, evidence that's contrary to the idea that there's this unsurpassably great being of perfect love and benevolence who designed um, ultimately the natural order. But yeah, I really yeah. like that argument. I'm glad Hitchens uh, mentioned it at least. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I should also say that the, um, well, okay. Yeah. I, I think I, you know, I mean, I agree with pretty much everything Hitchens says in that opening state, but I will say just for the sake of calling balls and strikes, honestly, that, um, as much as it, it sort of sounds good as he's saying it, I'm not honestly sure what it means to say that this is a <laughs> suburb of a not particularly important, you know, galaxy. It's like, I don't know what makes some galaxies more important than others. Yeah, no, he's, um, he's, he's definitely gifted in rhetoric. I mean, this just a hot take on my part. Um, Hitchens is, is a brilliant uh, public speaker, but yeah, I mean, sometimes the uh, substance can get kind of lost in it, but I do really just enjoy listening to him. You know, like it's, it's been a while since I've listened to anything, um, with him, but yeah, he's, um, you know, someone in the chat was saying, oh, you know, it seems like he's uh, depleted a little bit. It's like, well, he does appear to be undergoing chemotherapy, but he's still bringing it, you know, in my mind, at least. He seems like he's, uh, um, oh, it looks like we have more technical difficulties here. I'm alone on stream. Yeah, I, I just have to not touch this computer, uh, I guess, <laughs> uh, for the rest of the night. Uh, but... Um, as as people can no doubt tell with their keen powers of observation, I, I'm uh, I'm not uh, where I normally am when I do this stuff. Uh, so uh, there's no bookcase behind me and whatever. Uh, so I've I've kind of got the you know the uh, laptop uh, propped up uh, in a place where I really shouldn't touch it too much, or else uh, or else uh, that's going to happen again. Uh, I was panicking but, for a minute because you were gone there, but no, yeah. I, I was just about to start talking about utilitarianism or something because Matthew Edelstein jumped in the chat. You put him on screen how we were, cause you just had like two debates with him about utilitarianism. And I just had a, not a debate with him, but we talked for like three hours on my channel about it yesterday. And he very yeah. generously said that he spoke to both of us about utilitarianism rather than saying he owned us with facts and logic and proved utilitarianism, um, which yeah, is yeah, how yeah. he feels about it. Yeah. 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 It's definitely how he feels about it, but you know, whatever. I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm obviously not convinced, uh, but, um, but I, I also think, uh, you know, I also think the man can, uh, uh, you know, like make a really elaborate case and, uh, and I'm not, um, be real hesitant about this. Cause I think it could sound like, not like I mean it. Right. I mean, I mean this in an absolutely sincere way, but like, I'm also like blown away. That's like, I don't, I'm not totally clear on how old he is, but like, I'm pretty sure <laughs> I was a complete dumbass uh, at the, uh, at the same age. Yeah. No, I was, <laughs> I was, um, he, I think he's 18 cause I know he's about to be a freshman in, in college, but, um, yeah, I was, uh, I, I had no interest in philosophical questions. I was just like playing guitar and like trying to get laid until I was 19. I'd never, didn't have any kind of interesting philosophical thought go through my head until I was like 18. And he's already like, he seemingly knows everything there is to know about utilitarianism and has like firm convictions about it. Um, yeah, no, that's crazy. Okay, let's uh, let's get back to it.
share screen. We now move to rebuttals. Six minutes, Dr. Zelensky. Thank you very much. There's a disturbing area of agreement I sense between Mr. Hitchens and myself, which I will do my best to minimize. <laughs> Please remember, ladies and gentlemen, that when it comes to the wickedness of religion, I have ceded the point. It's no longer argumentative. I would remind you, however, of a remark Dr. Johnson made. He made it about original sin. And I paraphrased him. He said, the inquiry is not necessary for all the laws of heaven and earth are unable to prevent men from their crimes. Now, Mr. Hitchens is very much in the position of someone watching a cripple walking painfully with two crutches moving arduously and saying to himself and saying to you, I've got a great idea, kick one of the crutches away. Everything will be so much better. That seems to me a weak argument, a weak argument, not an impossible argument. I would welcome the defense of the argument. But it is no rebuttal to my position that atheism poisons everything, that religion poisons something. There are plenty of poisons in the world. We don't lack an abundance. Second point I would like to mention is this strange uh, views of, say, Lawrence Krauss or Stephen Hawking. You know, Stephen Hawking just published a book, and I don't know whether any of you have yet seen it. It is, again, a book explaining how everything began, why it's there, why we shouldn't worry about God, and a multitude of other subjects. He published it in collaboration with a friend of mine, Leonard Molodino, and, of course, the lines are very deep in the bookstores. And to paraphrase the claim that he now makes, having given up A through N, he now champions something called M theory. The claim that he now makes is the universe just blasted itself into existence following the laws of M theory. The universe just blasted itself into existence following the laws of M theory. I don't deny what Stephen Hawking has said. I do not endorse it. I haven't read the book, although I've read his other books. I respect Hawking as a reputable physicist who did his great work 30 or 40 years ago. But I can tell you this. What is lamentably lacking in every one of these discussions is that <coughs> coruscating spirit of skepticism which a Christopher Hitchens or a Richard Dawkins or a Vic Stengel will bring to religious claims and that lapses absurdly when it comes to scientific claims. Surely we should have the sophistication to wonder at any, any asseveration of the form that the universe has blasted itself into existence following the laws of M-theory, a theory that no one can understand, whose mathematical formalism hasn't been completed and which has never, never once been tested in any laboratory on the face of the Earth. Third and final point of rebuttal, the fact that the Earth, our home, is a small part of the physical universe does not mean it does not mean it is not the center of the universe. That is a non sequitur. After all, no one would argue, least of all Mr. Hitchens, that the doctrine that home is where the heart lies is rendered false by distance. We should be very careful about making these claims. I agree, the universe is very big, lots of galaxies, amazing things. 
And there is certainly some point of continuity between human beings and the animals that went before. But as for the central religious claim that this particular place is blessed and important, it's quite different. No doctrine about physical size rebuts it. Thanks very much. Uh, so there's not that much to talk about here, but I do, you know, maybe, maybe before I turn it over to whatever you have, I just want to say, um, I think that Berlinski is kind of trying to have it both ways here because in, you know, I mean, this is his claim, right? Atheism poisons everything. So what do you mean by that? And in the opening, right, the first thing he said almost Right, like I think maybe after the stuff about how the French Revolution was bad, is um, well, religion—it's religion may poison some things, but you know, atheism poisons everything, which certainly sounds like a claim that you know the. I mean, again, I don't think it's helpful to have this discussion sort of at the same time as the what's actually true discussion. You can keep those separate, but like. You know, it certainly sounds like his claim is that the consequences of not believing in God are worse than the consequences of believing in God. And if that, you know, otherwise I'm not sure how to interpret, you know, religion poisons some things, atheism poisons everything. So it seems like if that's going to be his claim, then when Hitchens brings up all of this stuff about the, you know, bad consequences of, of religion, I mean, that is actually going to be relevant to undermining that claim. And you can't just say, well, Hey, I already said that there was some bad stuff about religion. It's like that, that seems like a little bit trying to have it both ways. Yeah, no, he, he's like, I, I already said that religion poisoned some things, but it's like, okay, well, I think someone, I mean, someone in Hitchens position could grant, well, I, will concede that atheism poisons some things for some people some of the time. I mean, does yeah. that invalidate everything that you've said, you know, David? Like, you know, I, I don't think it does. Like, you should just, I don't know. Yeah, it does seem like he's being kind of slippery about it. Like, he doesn't want to really, like, buck up and defend the kind of radical position that he's staking out here. Like, atheism poisons everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, honestly, the thing that annoyed me the most about that whole um, rebuttal was just the uh, Stephen Hawking aside, you know, like, um, I don't know, just keying in on Stephen Hawking, like he's the Pope of atheism, like whatever he says about why the universe exists is like the best answer that there is or something. And yeah, I just, it's in line with his opening statement. He doesn't address practically anything that atheists have said about this. Like he just kind of references this one guy who's a physicist who openly hates philosophy. So of course is not going to have like a really great answer to like an abstract philosophical question like that. But um, if you don't mind, I did want to like take a minute to Please. address. So yep. I, I think that the whole, why is there something rather than nothing question or, you know, why does the universe exist question? I think the best response to that is something that has come from Graham Oppie, who's a well-respected philosopher of religion. So however, theists explain the existence of God, an atheist can explain the existence of nature in the same way. So if it's open to theists to say that God exists of necessity, then it's open to naturalists or atheists to say that the universe or some region of the natural order exists of necessity. If it's open to theists to say that God is a brute fact, you know, he just, he just is and that's all, then it's open to atheists to say the same thing about the universe or nature or what have you. So the best response to why is there something rather than nothing is not like an assertion of your you know, preferred answer. Cause you know, I, 
I have a preferred answer. You have a preferred answer probably. Um, but it's like a deep question and I don't know what the, what the right answer is to like, why does the universe exist? Um, but this is just sort of like a general strategy for, um, approaching the question in the, you know, theism versus atheism debate. So, you know, don't just try to defend your own particular answer. Don't ask rhetorically who created God or, you know, say that God did it is always a bad explanation or just say they're doing a God of the gaps argument. Like the best strategy is pointing out that whatever range of options is open to a theist in explaining why God exists. You know, if you ask a theist that question, they're going to have some kind of response to you. Okay. Whatever range of options is open to them in answering why God exists, the same exact range of options is going to be open to the atheist in explaining the existence of nature. So if we're trying to explain why there's something rather than nothing or why the universe exists, just postulating a God doesn't provide any explanatory advantage. Yeah. I mean, I, I think to be fair, that's, uh, I would say that's what the question who created God is gesturing at, right. Is that exact point, right. That the, uh, that, um, that like you, you haven't actually, like you're not done yet, right? If you say everything else exists because God exists, it's like, well, look, if you accept for the sake of argument that it's this like, it's like this deep problem, right? You know, like why why is there something rather than nothing? Then surely that applies to God too. I mean, at least that's that's how I would. Uh, yeah. No, there's, there's a good point. Like when you ask that rhetorical question, like there's a good point lurking in there. It's just, in my opinion, not the best expression of the point. And there's well, also just a pragmatic consideration, which is that this is just like a meme in philosophy of religion. And if you say who created God, you will like every theist will immediately start uh, having a meltdown and they will not listen to anything you say after that. So just pragmatically, it's worth just not saying <laughs> like yeah, just I guess. find another it's, way I, to make the same point. I, I, I guess I do find it a little front frustrating that when you get advocates of positions who sort of turn really good objections to their position into memes. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I think I would kind of say the same thing about the, uh, uh, what about the roads objection yeah. to like extreme libertarianism. It's like, yeah, that's, I'm sorry. That's actually a good question about your position. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You should have an answer to that. Yeah. I remember that clip from the libertarian convention, the one where uh, uh, with the driver's license thing, but I remember some earlier part of that where that, <laughs> that guy who was like, hell no to the, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the toaster thing or whatever. He, he also said like, Oh yeah. Uh, what about the roads? And then everyone in the audience laughed and I'm just like, what about the roads? <laughs> like, no, that's but a good seriously, what about the roads? Position. That's not going to work, right? Yeah. I mean, like, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just, I just feel like that would just be like, you know, it's like if, uh, if I were just going to be like, every time somebody brought up like the socialist, you know, calculation debate, you know, that like as like a problem, right? For a full, you know, full socialist plan. I was just like, oh, ha, ha, calculation. It's like, no, I mean, that's a, that's a real problem, right? You gotta have a, you know, you gotta have a response to that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's, um, it's, well, it's still I mean, tactically more useful, I think, and like more philosophically, I think, yeah. defensible to, if someone says, well, you know, why is there something rather than nothing? Why does the universe exist? Then just right. turning the question on them and saying, well, why does God exist? And saying, look, I don't even know how you're going to answer, but however you could answer as a theist, I, that same range of options is open to me as an atheist for explaining the existence of nature. Right. So postulating a God just doesn't, doesn't help anything. Helpfully spelling out why it's a good question, I guess. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I mean, with the Stephen Hawking thing, I think, think because Hitchens said something about hockey earlier and I don't remember exactly what he said but they have a 
Um, but so I think that's why he was bringing it up. It was this, uh, it was this, uh, well, he, you know, well, he sucks too kind of thing. Uh, but then, um, in, uh, uh, hold on just a second. There we go. So, um, but like his objection to hockey, I mean, this, okay, so I just did my defense of why, I mean, I guess we agreed, right, on, on how to put this, right? There's a good objection lurking, you know, there's a good point lurking in the, uh, the, the who made God question, right? I mean, I guess this would be my defense of the, uh, you know, God did is not a good explanation, you know, line uh, that, like, when he's dismissing hockey, right? So he's like, okay, like, I, I think, Right. And I, and look, I'm not a Stephen Hawking fan. I, I share a lot of your frustration that, you know, he's too dismissive of philosophy, et cetera. Right. But it's like, but, you know, I think the context here is that Hawking is saying, well, if you correctly understand whatever model of, you know, physics, then, you know, according to him, you know, you don't need to postulate a creator and like whatever. I, I think that's probably not a very good argument anyway. Right. I suspect once we like really look into what he means by it. Right. Cause I mean, again, it's, it's like, uh, you know, cause like physicists uh, who sort of make big inferences from like whatever they're studying, you know, what are, you know, from the uh, empirical premises about physics to these like huge philosophical controversies, I think oftentimes, you know, have not really, spent very much time thinking about the underlying controversy and it shows, right? So it's like, I'm not, the point of this is not to particularly defend Hawking, but like in, um, but like, I think Berlinski's response to Hawking is a really bad response because he's saying, well, look, uh, Hawking has this sort of mathematical formalism for his physical theory. That's like very elegant or whatever. But we shouldn't take it seriously because it hasn't really been empirically tested. And the problem, and I mean, I think in some ways it goes back to the same point that Graham Opie is making and the you know what you just quoted is is like, okay, but like let's apply a single standard here. Right? Like if you've got if you're saying, well, Stephen Hawking has this like very complex, well-worked out theory, but it's really hard to test. Therefore, we should just dismiss that as an explanation. Then, what are the tests that you're claiming that the uh, that like God created everything and that's that has passed? Right? I mean, like, 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 as they, how are we? How are you saying that like that should be considered a serious explanation, but like what Hawking is saying shouldn't? Yeah. Now, there's just so many weird gaps in uh, Berlinski's case here but yeah it's like it, it just feels i'm just annoyed that he's going after um a physicist at all in this oh, yeah. because it's like you know of course a physicist is going especially kind of like an anti-philosophy one is going to have kind of a, a bad answer to this but I, I guess berlinski's case is like well atheism poisons um among other things scientific inquiry and it leads you to say silly things like stephen hawking said you know when he when he's trying to explain why anything exists um 
and the thing is like that's not the fault of atheism that's the fault of stephen hawking uh not knowing anything about philosophy and refusing to learn about it like most physicists like who are in the public eye you know right. there this is a very abstract philosophical question you know why is there something rather than nothing it's not even clear that it's a meaningful question but trying to solve it with you know quantitative uh, like physical models right. just seems like the wrong kind of approach and um you know, it's just yeah, physicists no, I, are the wrong people to ask this question. I I strongly agree with all of the above, but I will also say that uh, that I think Berlinski's objection might be the worst objection that you could really make, which is not like, because like the right objection would have been along the lines of what you just said, hey, even if Hawking is completely right about how all this works, it doesn't really get to the why is there something rather than nothing question, right? right Maybe it just yeah. like pushes it back or something. That's like a perfectly reasonable response, which, you know, without knowing all the details, I would still put down a fair amount of money on, on the prediction that like, if we like spent a long time looking at the details, that's exactly what we conclude, right? You know, that it's like, this is, cause it's, cause I agree, it's the wrong kind of way to go about trying to, trying to respond to this question. But then Berlinski's response is, well, you shouldn't believe Hawking and Penrose on the on the actual physical theory, because um, you know because it's uh, because it you know they're you know because it hasn't been tested or something like that, right? It's like well, in that case, like what's the what's the test you think yeah. that the religious explanation has undergone that that hasn't? Yeah, if that's the standard here, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, let's keep going. Um, I swore to answer Professor Belinsky's two points about uh, totalitarianism and atheism. Um, well, his one point, and I had one to make, perhaps I'll make it in preface. Uh, atheism by itself is, of course, not a moral position or a political one of any kind. It simply is the refusal to believe in a supernatural dimension or a supernatural supervisor or dictator. And it's, it's maintenance of the view that there, though that cannot be disproved, no good evidence has ever been adduced for it or any good argument put forward for it. But that's where it ends. You can be an atheist and a nihilist. You can be an atheist and a sadist. <clears throat> you can be an atheist and say, as is said in Dostoevsky's famous passage of Brothers Karamazov, without God, anything is possible. Anything is doable, is thinkable. Of course, that's open, I would say, immediately to the objection that anyone who says they have God on their side also awards themselves, and you can see it happening by opening the newspaper, the right to commit any crime, however ghastly. Uh, that there's no escape from the existence of certain psychopathic human beings who either for want of supervision or by invoking the idea that they are the agents of a divine supervisor will do anything at all. But that gets us no further forward. You can be an atheist and a fascist. Most fascists were actually Christian. You can be an atheist and a communist. Most were not all communists, but were unbelievers by definition. You can be an atheist and perfectly indifferent to, the, to your fellow creatures. But there is a humanism within atheism. It starts, I think, with Lucretius, who put the atomic theory of Democritus and Epicurus into a wonderful poem that effectively suggested not that people were using religion as a crutch, as you so... Uh, in such a domesticated and furry way put it, but that instead on, on a very hot day, they were putting on a huge heavy overcoat and dragging a ball and chain. Oh,
that just reminded me that I completely forgot to say a thing about this earlier, but that crutch metaphor earlier was pretty amazing because the only way I could understand what he's saying is exactly the super cynical <laughs> that we were talking about earlier, right? That's like, well, look, you, Christopher Hitchens, you can get by without religion, but you know, I mean, all of these poor stupid plebes, they clearly need it. Oh, I hadn't even connected that, but yeah, I also just thought it was. Well, so that's funny. not what he said. I don't know what he said. I, it's it's also such a great tactic to uh, begin your rebuttal by just saying like, now imagine someone were to kick the crutch out of a disabled person. If you like that idea, then go ahead and agree with my opponent. If you think that's bad, then maybe you want to come over to my side. That's just so awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is that is kind of right up there with uh, uh, Lois Griffin at the mayoral debate. You know, answering every question with nine eleven. <laughs> If yeah, you would like to problem. disrespect 9-11 and its victims, then <laughs> exactly. maybe you'd be more comfortable on Hitchens' side. <laughs> but that instead, on, on a very hot day, they were putting on a huge, heavy overcoat and dragging a ball and chain. Oh, dear, my crops have failed. I didn't make enough sacrifices. Oh, God, I've had a filthy thought. Now I'm going to hell. Um, all my children are because I didn't baptize them. Man forged manacles of terror and ignorance and stupidity, the emancipation of which of our species has been millimetrically slow, but in which materialist and atheist thinkers have played a great part. Without Lucretius, you, can, you only have to read Galileo's work. He's inspired by the work of Lucretius. He considers, him, considers himself to be uh, very lucky to possess one of the very few copies of Lucretius's work that was not destroyed in the Christian centuries in the hope of putting an end to such terrible, unwise speculations as that, as so much of Galileo's work was either destroyed or censored. On the slow, the thread is passed on. It's picked up by the greatest Jew who ever breathed, Baruch Spinoza, changing his name later after his excommunication from the synagogue to Benedict. Who, who said, if there's a God, he's pantheistic, he's in nature, there's no personal God, prayers are not answered, divine interventions do not occur. The consolations of philosophy must be resorted to. From him and people like him, we get the, the enlightenment in which not only Danton and Robespierre, ladies and gentlemen, have their share, but Thomas Paine and Thomas Jefferson and the founders of this great republic and the Philadelphia enlightenment. This is not a tradition of which anyone on my side need be ashamed. And of course, not all of it is atheist, some of it is deist, but it becomes more atheist as Darwin and Einstein and others uh, approach us with their mind-boggling, almost one wants to say mind-altering findings. And you perhaps will say it's a coincidence that Einstein is expelled by the Third Reich, along with anyone else who understood anything about biology or physics, as practitioners of Jewish science, I'm sorry, the area of agreement has just contracted, sir. For you to say of Nazism that it was the implementation of the work of Charles Darwin is a filthy slander, undeserving of you, and an insult to this audience. Darwin's thought was not taught in Germany. Uh, Darwinism was derided in Germany, along with every other form of unbelief. The, 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 all the great modern atheist thinkers, Darwin, Einstein, and Freud were alike despised. Uh, by the National Socialist Regime. And there is, it said, I believe it to be true, a misprint in one German edition of The Origin of Species from which the full statement that evolution requires the survival of the fittest is taken, a statement never made by Darwin, who, as anyone knows, 
says that adaptability is what is likeliest to give uh, survival or luck or advantage, we'd better say, uh, in the struggle. Now, just to take the most notorious of the 20th century totalitarianisms, the most finished example, the most perfected one, the most ruthless and refined one, that of National Socialism, the one that fortunately allowed the escape of all these great atheist thinkers and many others to the United States, country of separation of church and state that gave them welcome. If it's an atheistic regime, then how come that in the first chapter of Mein Kampf, Hitler says he's doing God's work and executing God's will in destroying the Jewish people? How come the Fuhrer oath that every officer of the party and the army had to take, making Hitler into a minor god, begins, I swear in the name of Almighty God, my loyalty to the Fuhrer? How come that on the belt buckle of every Nazi soldier it says, Gott mit uns, God on our side? How come that the first treaty made by the National Socialist Dictatorship, the very first, is with the Vatican, ex exchanging political control of Germany for Catholic control of German education? How come that the church has celebrated the birthday of the Fuhrer every day, every year, I mean, on that day, until democracy put an end to this filthy, quasi-religious, superstitious, um. barbarous, reactionary system? Again, this is not a difference of emphasis between us to suggest that there's something fascistic about me and my beliefs is something I won't hear said and you shouldn't believe. Thank you. Dr. Bolinsky, your uh, recap, you have three minutes. Thank you. I've endeavored to assert the following problem. You know, um, I, I think just like uh, some historians have claimed that factors other than atheism were <laughs> present in the uh, French Revolution, I think some have also claimed that anti-Semitism had something to do with the rise of Nazis, something to do with the rise of Nazism. And um, it's it's just so bizarre. It's like it's not even like you have to be some kind of atheist partisan to reject the kind of pseudo history that Berlinski is kind of slipping in there. I mean, sometimes it's it's subtle enough, or maybe he's just so boring that I can't focus. But like he he is slipping in some fairly pernicious things, like about like just some bizarre misreadings of history. Um, yeah, but it, I mean, if you're if you want to talk about like because I mean Hitchens was starting to talk about. Um, uh, you know, the, sort of the Christian or at least theistic overtones of, you know, the uh, the Nazi regime or, you know, a little bit about anti-Semitism. It's like, you know, I mean, I think Christianity has a lot to do with anti-Semitism. Like, I mean, anti-Semitism has right. been around for a long time, obviously. And in the, within the Christian tradition, the Jews are regarded as Christ killers. Like they, they literally murdered God and the Catholic Church didn't admit until well after the world war ii yeah yeah after world war ii like i think decades after that the jews were not collectively guilty of the murder of god and um you know martin luther i, I just remembered this from his opening statement from berlinski's opening statement where he was saying how the nazis like killed disabled people and they were like oh well, we're, we're doing this because of natural selection or something <laughs> and it's like well first of all you know darwinism doesn't equal social darwinism it's just it's just very strange misreading on their part 
to um, think that they need to kill disabled people because of Darwinism. That's just, I mean, like, I, I don't understand how you, how you could hold atheism responsible for that. You couldn't even hold Darwinism responsible for that. But Martin Luther advocated uh, killing disabled people, I believe. I mean, I know he thought that they didn't have souls, like people who were um, like uh, cognitively disabled. Um, and speaking of Martin Luther, he also wrote a book called um, On the Jews and Their Lies, which advocated, you know, brutal violence against them. But I mean, if you just want to start pinning anti-Semitism on atheism, like, I don't know. I don't know if Berlinski directly did that. Again, he's like being kind of slippery. He's not saying anything very directly, but it's just very annoying to me. It's just like all these bad things are, we can pin it on this thing I don't like, atheism. Yeah, I mean, certainly the idea that anti-Semitism, um, you know, being as big a deal as, you know, like that, like, you know, sure, you know, you have all sorts of, you know, prejudices or, you know, the, uh, or, you know, tensions between, you know, between different groups that, you know, that, that could have, you know, arisen regardless, but I mean, the sort of scale and intensity of anti-Semitism in Europe, you know, in the 20th century is explicable at all. Right, you know, without uh, without the history of Christianity is is just kind of bizarre in its face. I mean, this is um, uh, this is actually probably the thing that you know you could most obviously you know uh, connect uh, connect to that. Um, but yeah, I mean, this like again, it, it's I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how Berlinski responds to this because I think that um, you know what you know what Hitchens has pointed out here. I mean, really badly undermines i mean i wish he'd i wish he'd done the jacobins too while he was at it you know but like it really badly undermines uh one of uh one of berlinski's core examples from his opening statement of um you know of of uh atheism causes you know tyranny and murder um which uh you know which which is which is hitler so i really hope that berlinski doesn't uh doesn't respond to that with another well i already said that you know that religion can be bad yeah it, it does seem like that's just kind of his fallback for everything he's like well you know anything that you say is already covered is in my the first sentence of my opening statement you know like i already acknowledged that religion does poison some things um anyway back to my completely ahistorical claims about how atheism is responsible for nazism right <laughs> all right let's keep going proposition first the general proposition that atheism poisons everything and second <coughs> the ancillary proposition that for sure religion poisons something. These propositions are not in conflict. And at the beginning of the discussion, I said they were in conflict. So asseverations to the contrary introduced into this discussion neither interesting evidence nor a valid argument. In terms of the social history of atheism, it seems to me when I began this debate, and it still seems to me now, overwhelmingly clear that while Nazism in Germany, communism in Russia, communism in China even, communism in Cambodia certainly had religious elements, who would deny that? Why is that an interesting claim? The governing apparatus of ideology, no matter what Hitler had to say, about his devotion to a warrior like Christ, involved the proposition among those who ruled these states and their entourage that no power, no power was greater than their own. 
They acted on that proposition. They were restrained by nothing. And we saw the consequences. Now you may say, and perhaps say truly, that in their heart of hearts, some Catholics <laughs> adopted the rituals of the SS and took communion after an especially arduous day murdering innocent women in the fields of Poland. Could be true. I don't deny it. Yeah, it is true. Well, like, I, I don't, I, I truly... This is to be an intellectually... Like, is he expressing incredulity that, like... Uh, a true Christian could go hurt people on mass. Like how many, how much time do you have? Like, right, right. yeah. And he, and he even just said, he's just like, never mind what Hitler said or whatever. <laughs> secretly, secretly he was an atheist and motivated by atheism. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So it just doesn't count, you know, that we can be sure that Robespierre, who was very publicly non an atheist, uh, but you know, but since he, since he, uh, uh, you know, since he rededicated, you know, the Temple of, you know, the uh, Notre Dame Cathedral, you know, that like we could be sure that, you know, that he uh, he's atheist. But if like Hitler said like a hundred thousand super religious things, you know, we could <laughs> nevertheless be sure that, you know, like obviously, obviously he was secretly an atheist. And not only was he a secretly an atheist, but like that is that is what explains why he did what he did. And just like his main argument on this point still seems to be that, well, atheism poisons our social and, uh, you know, governmental structure because it mean, it eliminates any sort of higher power or higher authority. And these people acted like there was no higher authority. And as Hitchens, you know, already pointed out and often pointed out, like people who think that they're being commanded by God to do something are willing to do terrible things as well. Like people who think there is a higher power and that God is telling them to do this, they have just as much confidence in doing just as awful things. Uh, it just doesn't seem like, you know, either one of these very shorthand statements, like, oh, without God, everything is permitted. And then it's like, okay, well, with God, a lot of things seem permissible as well, because God is commanding you to do it, so it can't be wrong. I mean, there's obviously so much more to be said about that, but just these kind of one sentence, you know, yeah, kind yeah. of like deepity about like, Oh well, they acted like there was no uh, like higher higher authority. It's like, well, look, I have a one sentence response to that too. Now, do you want to actually have like a nuanced conversation about this issue, or or not, or do you want to just keep doing what you're doing? Yeah, and I mean, it does it does go to how bad this like Berlinski's responses are here, because if you just say, well, okay, religion poisons some things, but atheism poisons everything, which I don't know how to understand, you know, I mean, to be fair, you could make the same point about Hitchens, religion poisons everything, but the, uh, but like, I don't know, um, you know, I assume that Berlinski doesn't quite mean that literally, right? I mean, does, does, does uh, atheism poison calculus, right? You know, like whatever, but like, you know, taking it as they say uh, about Trump, you know, seriously, but not literally, like, <laughs> Uh, I assume that atheism poisons everything means uh, that like the consequences of atheism are way worse than the, you know, like, I don't know how else to interpret religion poisons some things, but atheism poisons everything that the consequences of atheism are far worse uh, than the consequences of religion. And then if you're further going to say, what of my primary examples of atheism poisons, everything poisoned, everything are the leaders of these regimes supposedly, you know, not believing in a higher power that could judge them. Um, well, I mean, if if the claim is that people are going to act worse 
in those positions of power, if they don't believe in a higher power that can judge them, then surely things that religious people do in power are going to be very relevant to analyze, you know, like adjudicating whether that's true or not. Right. I mean, like that, that's, that's uh, like, if you're going to say people are going to act worse in positions of power, right. You know, because um, you know, because they don't believe in God, then, I mean, you know, you've got to compare, you know, at the very least, right. I mean, you've got to, you've got to look at all of the bad things that, you know, that people who didn't believe in God, you know, did with their power. And also all the bad things that people who did believe in God did with their power. And then like, I mean, you're, to- you're obviously right. I mean, that, that shouldn't be the end of the conversation. You know, you should then like start to ask harder questions about like why we're, why we think there's a causal connection and, you know, and all of that stuff. But like, at the very least, you do need to look at all those things. And if it doesn't look like the record of atheists in power overall is worse than the record of religious people in power, then like that very badly undermines the original claim. Yeah. I mean, and that little defense mechanism just doesn't help anything. Like everything you just said, it's not undermined by saying, well, I already granted that religion can poison some things. It's like, dude, you're the one who's saying that like atheists in power will behave worse. And then you cite these things that are not really attributable to atheism. And then you just deflect on everything, um, you know, where religious people were involved in some atrocity. Like it it just, it's, um, you know, playing tennis without the net as another do atheist would say. Yeah, absolutely. I'd also say, by the way, uh, this is a little bit snotty and it's a side point, but I do find that there is a certain kind of person who really likes to use the word proposition the way that he uses it here, right? Like who really likes to refer to claims uh, as propositions and use phrases like ancillary proposition um i'm i'm you know it's like uh the god i don't know last week i think i was or the week before i don't know i was uh, watching um uh jordan peterson debating kyle kalinsky and like the way that peterson is saying well i don't believe that you know that rights are a secondary derivative of the social contract <laughs> it's like you know there's something about some of these turns of phrase that uh I, I don't know. I, it, that's that seems like something that people do a lot if they uh, if it's very important to them that everybody understand that they're smart. Yeah, I think there was a one million percent increase in the term uh, presupposition after Jordan Peterson came on the scene. That was like a word that not a lot of people used until he showed up and started using it like in every other sentence. <laughs> exactly. All right, let's keep going. A serious discussion is not whether there were infiltrations of religious thought in the worst tyrannies of mankind. Of course there were. That goes without saying. But whether something fundamental had changed in the diapason of thought that made these atrocities possible, and I say yes, there was. I've argued as well that atheism as a position has a deforming influence on science, and I've given you my reasons. Finally, I have argued that atheism, insofar as it removes from the human context a brute sense of obligation based on fear, a brute sense of obligation based on fear, removes from the moral calculus profound and powerful reason not to do evil. I think there's no escaping this. It's unpleasant. I don't particularly like it. And to be perfectly honest, I haven't lived my life that way, but I recognize it as a fact. And I think we all must. 
With that said, I thank you for listening. I, I think he just said, um, you know, without religion, a huge disincentive for bad behavior is removed. Now, does my own life reflect this? No, it does not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is either a confession that uh, that like he's you know he's a monster, or <laughs> or else uh, in his case, for some reason, it doesn't work that way. He actually just accidentally gave a really good counter argument. You know where. Uh, atheism doesn't poison this particular thing. It actually provides, um, you know, good. Like it actually creates unique goods in the world that wouldn't exist. Is that a cuckoo clock? <laughs> uh, yes, it, that is. A, that is in fact a cuckoo clock. Yes. Um, Does not belong to me. Um, oh yeah, the, uh, I was distracted it's, it's by the off cuckoo twice clock. Before, but one of them was with the opening. Uh, music was going on and then the other one was while we were watching. So this is the first time everybody else got to enjoy the cuckoo clock. Also. <laughs> I was a little distracted by the uh, literal cuckoo clock there, but um, no, I was saying that atheism, there are unique goods in the world that only yeah. exist because of atheism. And he kind of just admitted that where he was saying like, well, if uh, God doesn't exist, then there's not this uh, big stick, you know, that uh, threat, you know, threatening you to be moral or whatever. And yet, atheists are still moral. You know, I mean, Hitler, notwithstanding a very famous atheist, uh, Adolf Hitler, but I mean, setting him to one side, um, <laughs> you know, it's like atheists do good and they don't have an audience. They don't think they're going to be rewarded in the afterlife. And yet, you know, they're still doing good things and they don't think that there's anyone watching them and they don't think they're going to be punished if they do bad things beyond the consequences of that are offered by society that hold for, you know, theists and atheists alike so it's like there are unique goods as a consequence of atheism um because it's just a fact that atheists also uh, do good things they don't seem significantly less moral than theists they seem to be just as moral slash immoral as theists and um i mean if i think hitchens might have pointed this out at some point as well not in this debate that in a way that does kind of make atheists more moral than right. theists because we're still doing similar things we're still behaving in similar ways but we don't have this big disincentive for bad behavior. Yeah. I mean, at, at the very least, it's, you know, at the very least it, um, to the extent that you're sure that somebody's really an atheist, uh, then that means that the, uh, that takes off the table, the thought that they're, they're doing, you know, they're doing what they're doing, you know, like for non-moral reasons, right. You know, that like, uh, at least, to the extent that we're talking about things that aren't going to be punished by society or whatever. Right. You know, that like that they, somebody who's just doing something good, right. You know, that they're not trying to, uh, um, that they're doing it because they think that it's good, you know, rather than, uh, rather than because they think that they're going to be rewarded for it or punished if they don't. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember there was a rabbi who like, I think it was in the early 19th century who he said something about, um, you should act like an atheist. Like it, when you see someone in need, you shouldn't say, Oh, I, I'm going to pray for you. Or I hope God helps you or, you know, God's will be done or something. You should say, if I don't help this person, no one will, you know, like you sort of act as if there is no God. Like right. if I don't help this person, then no one is going to help this person. And I mean, that was, that was his um, moral advice was you should think like an atheist when you see people in need. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's keep going. 
Perhaps I can help close the, the, the gap a little, the gap that uh, Professor Polinsky complains of in my, in my closing remarks. I came across a stray uh, comment by George Orwell, of whom I'm a great admirer, in, an, in a little-known essay recently in which he said, at root, all totalitarianism must be theocratic. And I thought of my most admired author, that's, that's rather stretching it. This, it's certainly possible to admire totalitarianism, to, admire, to identify totalitarianisms that are not explicitly uh, religious. Uh, he went on to clarify it a bit. He said, the reason I say it's theocratic is this. In all such dictatorships, there must be certain unchallengeable assumptions, some things that are beyond discussion, that are not available that, for debate, that must be taken as statements of faith. In other words, in, in Italy, for example, under fascism, il duce ha sempre ragione, the leader is always right. Um, the, of course, the cult of the Fuhrer, uh, the view that Stalin could bring two or three crops a year and was the great protector of the people, the worship of Mao, the, to take the other great uh, element of the, of the uh, Axis powers, Japan, the emperor was actually a god. Couldn't have anything more theocratic than that, though he had secular appearance as well. Now, if you think of totalitarianism, totalitarianism in that way, and if you think of that as the greatest poison, since I'm accused not of mentioning poison enough or stressing it enough, then you'll see that the charge that is essentially theocratic is true because it depends upon unchallengeable statements, dogma, and faith. I don't know if anyone wants to name to me, or whether David will take up the challenge, a statement of atheism that is a statement purely of faith, independent of evidence, requiring no reasoning, and above all, punishable if challenged. I don't believe you can come up with anything of the sort. To the contrary, the little faction with which I'm honored to be identified as a junior member is adamant for doubt, is resolved to be skeptical, is certain only of the principle of uncertainty, and says that what we have yet to know is enormously greater than anything we have discovered or known so far, and that that and only that is the test of education, of, of intellectual integrity, of honesty and inquiry, and, yes, let's hope for it, the emancipation of humans from, from man-made, and I stress man-made, delusions, including uh, uh, hopeful ones, including false consolation. And Ten seconds. Thus, thus again, and I'll close by repeating myself, um, I've done worse. Uh, <laughs> it is only those who claim to know things like the mind of God and the origins and destination and intention of the universe. It is they and only they who owe the explanation and so far this evening haven't cared to furnish it. Thank you. We now move to the question and answer. All right. Well, we usually skip Q and A on here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you know, you said something earlier, which which is probably worth underlining that, like, um, you know, one thing that is really impressive about all of this is that, um, like, you know, he's bald from chemotherapy and he keeps coughing, 
Uh, and, uh, and he's, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think just, just on a, on a pure performance level, just abstracted away from context, you know, I think he's, uh, I think he's, he's doing better and is much quicker on his feet than, you know, like even most people who do this would be. Yeah. No, I mean, he's still more like a rhetorically gifted and like cooler than I would be in this situation, yeah. <laughs> like as he's yeah uh, dying of cancer and I'm just in like perfect health. And I would, I would still probably, uh, well, I mean, the other thing is, you know, I, I couldn't help but turn it into like a more philosophical yeah. case. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, I would, um, start, uh, like aping Paul Draper or something. I would not like, yeah. uh, make exactly the case that that Hitchens does. Um, I mean, partly because, you know, I couldn't rhetorically and because I'm not as historically knowledgeable as he is, but you yeah. know, I'm just, I'm, I'm a lot more interested, um, in the, uh, you know, philosophical issues surrounding right. God's existence more so than any kind of activist, uh, consideration. Yeah. And I, I think that Hitchens was obviously, um, at his strongest, uh, when he was talking about either history or morality, that the uh, that and you know I, I do tend to think he was he was at his weakest uh, when uh, when he was um, you know when he was arguing well certainly I think he was the weakest when he was arguing about the existence of uh, of, of God you know that like in, in a strange sort of way he almost didn't seem to care very much about that um, like he you know he you know he always made it clear that he would you know. Uh, didn't think there was sufficient evidence to, you know, to believe in a God, but I mean, like it, it, it always, it always felt to me like um, when he was in debates about religion and, you know, like the arguments for the existence of God came up that, you know, he, he always felt a little impatient to like go on. It's like, no, 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 but I really want to do the like sort of humanistic moral critique of religion. Let's get to that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, he was more concerned with like the the practical issues about um about religion. And I I mean when he was debating William Lane Craig, you know, I think the yes. consensus is generally that he did not do so well when uh, no. you know, he was confronted with the more like uh philosophical um, you know, like philosophically rigorous approach and I've also heard kind of like third or fourth hand that he was absolutely trashed before that debate even started like the the student who picked him up from the airport has like i've like heard this like through through like a chain of people is like he was he was really really drunk even when they picked him up from the airport before the debate even started (laughs) yeah yeah i'll buy that i uh i mean he like some of his demeanor especially in the part where he and craig ask each other questions does feel a little bit like that uh it's always hard to tell I would, you know, I would assume that, uh, you know, days where he had partaken not at all were probably rare, but they have a, uh, but like, I think that, uh, I think there's a range and, uh, and he does, you know, and, and yeah, he, he does seem, uh, yeah, I think that's plausible. Um, mm-hmm. I should say it is really, you know, God, I mean, even now, maybe, right? Like in this in this debate, we're watching from 2010, right? You know that the uh, like he has. I remember so in there's this book. Uh, they do these for a bunch of people, but there was one for Hitchens. It's the last interview and other interviews. Uh, so it's like just this little collection of interviews that includes the last one he gave before he died. And uh, leading up to that, right? There's a profile of him. I do not remember who by, but. Um, that was, you know, during, you know, as you said earlier, Chrome Dome, 
uh, Hitchens uh, era. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's like a pretty good profile. It's like very well written, uh, you know, the stuff about the, you know, Hitchens, uh, you know, in the state that he's in here, you know, staying up and watching the sunrise and stuff like that. But like the really funny part of it is that the, uh, the guy um, brought uh, a bottle of wine with him to the interview. Cause he's like, okay, look, surely he's not drinking whiskey anymore, but like, um, <laughs> you know, maybe he'll at least have a glass of wine. And, uh, and when he got there, Hitch had said, Oh, great. Right, because I, I I feel bad. I felt bad because I wasn't gonna have any wine to offer you. Because I'm out, you know. Then he pours himself a slug of Johnny Walker Black. And he's like, <laughs> "Wait, you're you're still doing that? Like, 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 while you're you know think chemotherapy, all this stuff?" And he was like, "Well, none of my doctors told me I had to stop." It's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I suspect he didn't bring up the uh, suggestion, you know, <laughs> when he's talking to the doctors. Yeah, I'm sure he didn't ask. He was just like waiting for them not to say anything. But I I swear, um, I think you wrote about this, but I'm curious if you think um, he would have been a Bernie bro. I know that everyone, like they love to project their own political yeah. views. Oh, Hitchens would have supported Trump. He would have supported Hillary. But I mean, I do kind of suspect he would have been a Bernie bro. Yeah, I think he might have been. I think that um, like try to be like look at this objectively i think the one thing that i actually do feel like we can rule out with some certainty is trump uh because not just because the very few comments he'd ever made about trump were like uh was this one thing on c-span where he says like the brian lamb asked him something about trump and he says oh god and then it's like the only as far as i've ever been able to tell the only impressive thing about donald trump is that he's found a way to cover 90 percent of his skull with 10 percent of his hair uh <laughs> but and then in a column for the nation um during the 2000 election when i mean it's kind of funny that everybody's completely forgotten about this but in 2000 trump was like I don't know that he was ever officially on any ballot or whatever, but he was like at least considering publicly uh, running for the Reform Party nomination, right? So it's like the guy who 20 years later would actually be president of the United States, you know, was uh, also ran for like a, a third party nomination. But uh, in his column about that race, uh, Hitchens uh, says that uh, uh, just, you know, describes him as a nutball narcissistic tycoon. Uh, and uh, as somebody pointed out in the chat, actually, like some of his comments about Ross Perot, I think could probably be transposed onto Trump. But uh, uh, but so for, so I think he clearly like intensely disliked Donald Trump as a person. But I think even more so, I think just like all the stuff that Trump stood for. I mean, I I, I think that like Hitchens at his absolute political worst still you know would. Uh, fine, pretty vile, right? You know, the, uh, like, like again, I think if you look at some of what he wrote and said about the Tea Party and, you know, Glenn Beck, Sarah Palin, you know, all of this stuff, I, I, I just don't have a, really don't see any grounds for thinking that he, he would have been a Trump guy. Now, uh, he did also hate the Clintons very much. So, um, you know, think that the range of possibilities would include him just sort of being pox on all their houses about it, you know, which is actually what he, I mean, he was a Nader guy in the 2000 election, you know, he could have reverted to something like that. Um, but 
As far as the primary goes, I mean, again, I don't know. I think some of his late in life foreign policy positions would have, you know, static between him and the sort of like, you know, young Bernie people. But like, and I certainly can't imagine him saying anything nice about Jeremy Corbyn. But like, Bernie, I actually think it's possible that he would have supported because if you, I mean, I think certainly some of the sort of core economic, um, I don't think he ever completely gave up, right? I think if you look at some of what he wrote very late, like, you know, like I think that the idea that economic inequality on a huge scale is like bad and worrying, right? You know, is, is still is still definitely in the mix. And then I think the thing that probably the and then again, he did always really hate, you know, the Clinton, so that would have helped too. Uh, and like hated the hated them for the right reasons, right? If you read his book, mm-hmm. No One Left to Lie to you know, about Bill Clinton. I mean, like he talks about welfare reform and, you know, a lot of other things like that in there, uh, healthcare. But um, but I think probably the biggest thing that makes me think that he might have at least said some nice things about Bernie in the election, possibly even like unambiguously supported him, is uh, that moment in the uh, 2016 Democratic debates where uh, I talk about this at the beginning of the book, where it's like, uh, where... Hillary brags that like Henry Kissinger is like a yeah. is like this like super good friend of hers, and yeah, Bernie, she touted not... his endorsement as like she's like I was endorsed by Henry Kissinger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'm you know Bernie is like you know, I'm proud to say Henry yeah. Kissinger is not my friend. <laughs> like I have to think that as somebody who spent decades obsessed with hating Kissinger, you know, that like that, that would have gotten him some points from uh, Hitchens. Yeah, no, I, I mean, there's definitely like a negative and positive case that he would have been a Bernie bro. First off, just by process of elimination, like the idea that he would have supported Hillary, like, I mean, he's got such a huge track record of criticizing the Clintons, like you said, for the right reasons, like he knew why they yeah. were bad. And right. also just the idea that he would have supported like an illiterate billionaire you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or at least multimillionaire, like, you know, it's just, th- those are both so unbelievable and so out of line with his values. And then yeah. with Bernie, so yeah, Bernie does kind of win by uh, elimination, but also Bernie does seem in line with his professed values. Like mm-hmm. he, d- I mean, yeah, the rejection of the anti-endorsement of like uh, Kissinger, but also like, you know, Hitchens never really abandoned his like socialist beliefs or like his like left-wing economic convictions, as far as I can tell. Like it seemed like he just thought that socialism kind of withered on the vine, and but it's not like he actually stopped thinking that. Um, you know, like it's not like his critique of capitalism or his defense of socialism really changed. He just thought that socialism kind of withered. You know, like at least that's what I. I mean, he talked about it kind of mournfully. You know. No, that's, I think that's exactly right. I mean, like, I, I, you know, like he stopped being a socialist in the sense that he, like, gave up on the thought that it was ever going to happen. Right. right? Yeah. But, like, he didn't think that was a good thing, you know, that it was never going to happen. So, yeah. Exactly. I think, no, I feel like Bernie, it would yeah. have rekindled something. And, like, I can't help but think he would have been a Bernie bro. Yeah. I think that's entirely possible. Uh, like I said, I think that the, um, you know, I think, like, pro-Trump or pro-Brexit or anything like that, absolutely not, you know, and I think that there's a range of possibilities that definitely includes, you know, the, um, yeah, that definitely includes him being a Bernie bro in 2016, um, which, uh, you know, 
as much as I would like to think it, like I, I also think that it might actually be true. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that's pure wishful thinking. I think that there's a, I think there's like a plausible scenario where that would have happened. All right. Well, Hey, um, really enjoyed this. Uh, Emerson, where can people check out your stuff? Uh, you can, sorry, there was just a loud noise um, outside my apartment. But, um, uh, I didn't hear any cuckoo clocks going out over there. <laughs> um, so you can check out the the Emerson Green YouTube channel. And as you mentioned at the beginning, I have, I have two podcasts, one called Walden Pod and one called um, Counter Apologetics. Um, I started off just making those two podcasts and then I eventually started uploading them on YouTube. So that's why there's kind of the... Uh, um, you know, it's kind of spread out among platforms and stuff, but yeah, counter apologetics and Walden pod. And, um, on YouTube, I just have the Emerson green YouTube channel and they all kind of find their way there, but I'm at Walden pod on Twitter and, uh, yeah, that's about it. Fair enough. Thank you so much for having me on, by the way. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, this is great. We should absolutely do this again. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we are going to be uh, back on Monday. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I think we might uh, unlock the um, the the Rick Perlstein interview uh, that uh, patrons got a little while back. So uh, look forward to that. See people then. Thanks, good Emerson. Left is best. Mm-hmm.